after the ring was destroyed at Mount Doom, Sam woke up from his sleep, surprised he was alive and surprised to see Gandalf. And then he said, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Today in our study of John's gospel, we reach um, the beginning of what J.R.R. Tolkien, the, the Oxford professor, the author of The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, and many other works, what he calls the, the eucatastrophe of all of history. I've used this word before, eucatastrophe, but Tolkien made it up. And he defines eucatastrophe as sort of the opposite of a catastrophe. He says it's the, the, quote, the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. He goes on to say that the resurrection was the greatest eucatastrophe possible because it produces that essential emotion, Christian joy, which produces tears because it is qualitatively so like sorrow. Because it comes from those places where joy and sorrow are at one reconciled. I heard a pastor say one time that the resurrection is that moment when all heaven breaks loose. Or as Sam from the Lord of the Rings asks, is everything sad coming untrue? That's the moment we are all longing for, isn't it? When everything sad comes untrue. So biblically speaking, the idea of a eucatastrophe can be summed up with a verse found at the end of the Revelation to John. In Revelation 21 verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. But if you're familiar with today's passage, we're going to begin John chapter 18. You might notice that it doesn't, it doesn't look like a catastrophe. It just straight up looks like a catastrophe is beginning to unfold. The king is taken into custody. His loyal followers begin to put up a, a, a bit of a fight, but he quickly stops them. Even though... Even though the armies of his enemies drop to the ground in utter humiliation when he simply tells them who he is. One of his closest friends essentially becomes the embodiment of his greatest enemy. Yet this is the beginning of everything sad coming untrue. This is the beginning of the one who is seated at the throne, making all things new. And as at, the, as at the first beginning, this beginning begins in a garden. So let me read this, John chapter 18, verses 1 to 12. It says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? 
They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So we asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Let's pray again. Father, what we need, I pray that you would give us today. You know our greatest needs. And so I pray that you would help us to understand your word. Help us to understand this narrative, this story, these events, the words that Jesus says, the words that you have given us. Help us to understand these things, that we may become like Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as this chapter opens, there's clearly a a scene shift from that that long section of Jesus' teaching and and prayer that, that really began back in chapter 13 and as he washed the feet of his disciples. And it continues all the way through chapter 17 as he prays for them what is sometimes called his high priestly prayer, as he, as he goes to the Father on behalf of his church, really, his disciples and all who will come after them, he says. And as this scene changes here in chapter 18, it shifts back from a long period of teaching to a narrative. And a narrative is a story. It tells us what is said and done, but it doesn't necessarily tell us straightforwardly why. And so we have to explore why these things happened the way that they did. Or, or really, we could put it this way, what is going on here? But, but let's recap, because it's, it's been a couple of weeks since we have been in John's Gospel. And as we begin chapter 18, we're entering a, really it's the sixth or seventh, depending on how you break up John's Gospel, it's the sixth or seventh section of this book. And so John famously has started his book in chapter 1, verse 1 through 18, with with a prologue. It's an introduction to Christ and to the book. And right from the beginning, right from those opening verses, we can see some of the connections that that he makes with the book of Genesis. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1-1. Following the prologue and continuing through chapter 4, the second section is really about witness and revelation. And it really is best summarized, I think, with the words of John the Baptist when he proclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. During that time period, chapters uh, really chapter 1 verse 19 through chapter 4, Christ chooses his disciples... And then he also hints at the upcoming Great Commission as he, as he preaches to a Samaritan woman at the well and he heals a Gentile's son. You will be my witnesses, he tells them in Acts 1.9. 
Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Jesus modeled this. But we see a growing conflict with the Jewish religious leaders in chapters 5 through 8. And this, also, this is also where we begin to hear Jesus' great I am statements. Those phrases that Jesus uses to connect himself with the very name of God. That personal name that was first revealed to Moses at the burning bush and now is claimed by Jesus Christ himself. We'll come back to this in a little bit. But that section of scripture, John 5 through 8, really gets under the skin of the Jews. So much so that this section ends with these verses. The the last couple of verses of chapter 8, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They weren't just throwing little rocks at him. They were going to kill him. And so in chapters 9 through 12, he focuses his ministry toward believers. He offers them assurance with statements like, I am the good shepherd. And he ministers to, to Lazarus' family. It displays through Lazarus' resurrection was the pinnacle of his ministry to them. Calling Lazarus out from the tomb. Really, he was displaying for them what was to come for him and for all of his disciples, all those who would believe in him, resurrection. And then in chapters 13 through 17, he pulls aside his closest disciples, really just the 11 at this point, and he offers them encouragement and promises, and prayer, as he prepares them for such a time as this, what they are now facing here in chapter 18, this this final section of John's gospel, and it begins with his betrayal and arrest, a betrayal that he knew was coming. Back in chapter 13, verses 26 and 27, Jesus had said, it is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. That brings us to where we are today in the narrative. So we're going to break this into four parts. Um, Number one, what is going on with the betrayal? This is where we'll probably spend the bulk of our time here and in part number two, which is what is the significance of these seekers? Then number three, what does he mean by, uh, when, he, when he talks about the cup, what does he mean by that? And then number four, and we're only going to touch at this today, and Lord willing, we will pick it up here next week, but why does Jesus allow them to bind him? So the betrayal, the seekers, the cup, and then he is arrested and bound. Let's begin with the betrayal. Look again at these first three verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Notice that he uses the phrase, a couple of different phrases there in the very first verse. He says, John says, he went out, and then he says, he entered. And of course, with his disciples with him. We actually, we actually don't really know what he went out from. Um, it could have been the upper room, which is where the previous 
Um, the, the previous passage is often called the Upper Room Discourse. But that last verse of chapter 14 seems to indicate that they'd already gotten up and left there, and they'd spent the last few chapters, 15, 16, and 17, probably walking. So maybe he just simply went out from Jerusalem or, or just the area that they had been walking through. But what we really should see in these phrases, we should look at them as a transition, not just in their physical location, but really for his ministry. He's entering the hour for which he came. The hour of his suffering. The time has come for him to lay down his life. And yet one of the things that is clear from all of this is that he is in control of this. Remember his words back in chapter 10? In verses 17 and 18 of John chapter 10, we read this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so this is the moment that the gospel according to John has been building toward. Remember how John opened. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. I said this before, but that sounds like Genesis 1, doesn't it? John is is writing through the lens of Genesis. In fact, it's, it's tough not to see Jesus as a better Adam. Let me, let me give you a one-sentence explanation that really should help us to understand the passage in, in this light, in the light of looking at it through uh, Jesus being better than Adam. Uh, I, I forgot to write down where I got this, so this is an original to me, but it's just one sentence that I stole from somebody, borrowed, borrowed from somebody. It says this, Succeeding where Adam failed, Jesus Christ entered into a garden and surrendered himself to the betrayal of the world, not by force, but by his self-surrendered will, in order to drink the cup of suffering from the Father for the salvation of the world. This is where, for Christians, everything sad begins to come untrue. Because Jesus entered this garden. James Montgomery Boyce was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Pennsylvania. Wrote several books and commentaries. And he, and he put this like this, speaking of this passage. He says, Adam and Eve, by their sin, plunged the race into misery. They fell and carried their progeny, progeny over the cliff of sin into destruction. Christ, on the other hand, stood firm. He did not sin, nor did he shrink from his work. As a result, he saved all whom the Father had given him. In Adam, all were lost. Christ could say, those you have given me, I have kept. None of them is lost. So Jesus entered into this garden to fulfill the the covenant obligations that Adam failed to keep but also to be betrayed by Judas. And Jesus isn't hiding. He doesn't go to the garden at night to hide from them, from those who would come to arrest him. In fact, he went to the place where Judas would, knew that he would be. 
So, so we've seen the, the bigger picture of what is going on here, why he's going to this garden. That Jesus is obedient in the garden where Adam was disobedient. That he's going to bring life where Adam brought only death. That instead of catastrophe here, there's going to be you catastrophe, all things new. So look at verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Have you ever, have you ever wondered in what way this is a betrayal? The Jews have been looking for ways to silence Jesus. They had been looking for ways to kill him. I said before at the end of chapter 8, they even attempted. They picked up rocks and were ready to stone him, even in the temple. They were ready to put him to death, and he somehow uh, eluded them. They don't really need Judas for this. They just need to get him into a dark alley. They just need the crowds to be gone. And so in that way, Judas did deliver, brought them to Jesus' place of prayer. But this is a betrayal in a cosmic sense. Let, Let me show you what I mean. First of all, look at this show of force that Judas brings. It's massive. Why does he bring a massive show of force? I'll explain that in a second. But why does he bring a massive show of force? Judas has seen Jesus walk on water. He has seen him heal the sick. He's seen him calm angry seas with just a shh. He's seen him feed thousands with a boy's lunch. He's seen him raise the dead. Judas has an idea of his opponent's strength. And look at what he brought with him in this battle. This is why it is a massive show of force. The ESV here says a band of soldiers. I think the King James says a band of men. We miss kind of the significance of this in English. We think of a couple of guys, maybe five or six. I don't know what you think of, but that's what I've always thought of. But Judas brought with him some portion, at least, of a cohort of Roman soldiers. That's what this phrase means here. A cohort is typically a thousand Roman soldiers. Now, that doesn't mean he brought a thousand Roman soldiers that night, but it has to mean that he brought more than a few. In fact, it's likely that there are at least a couple hundred trained, armed, veteran Roman soldiers with him in the garden that night. And from their point of view, this actually makes sense because up until very recently, Jesus had thousands of followers, followers that had followed him from all over the Sea of Galilee. They had gotten in boats and gone looking for him. The Pharisees had just said in frustration in chapter 12, just before he goes off privately a week before this with the disciples, they had just said in frustration, the whole world has gone after him. Remember how verse 3 is worded there. Judas brought them. He had gone out and gathered this show of force, and he had convinced them to come with him. And not just the Romans, but also the, some of the officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. These are the temple police officers. They saw themselves as God's cops. These are God's police officers in their eyes. And they had jurisdiction here. 
We know this because they took him first to the high priest. They didn't bring him to Pilate first. That was later. They brought him first to the high priest. Now let's think about all of this. These two groups are working together. This um, band of soldiers, probably hundreds of Roman soldiers, led by a captain in verse 12. These soldiers and also the um, police officers from the temple, the Pharisees, cops. They're working together to keep the peace. They're working together to maintain the status quo in Jerusalem. They don't want revival. They don't want national repentance. And they certainly don't want a messianic kingdom. They want the world to stay as the world has been because they want to stay in power. So who are these two groups? They're Jews and Gentiles. The whole world has come out against him. That's what this is supposed to represent. The whole world has come out against him. And if that's not enough, what do they bring with them? It says that they brought lanterns and torches and weapons. So think of the cosmic battle. Why do they need multiple sources of light? So in a worldly sense, it's night. It makes sense that they brought flashlights with them, right? It's nighttime. But this is a cosmic battle. They're the darkness. John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Ben mentioned this in Sunday school. In him is life, and the life is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's a promise. That's a statement of fact. And here we can see this. The darkness has not overcome the light. Things look very bleak here in the garden, but the darkness will not overcome the light of the world. I mentioned a little bit ago that Jesus is, is in charge of these events. And so he went to a, a common for him, yet out of the way place where they could arrest him without causing a scene, without endangering the lives of the people of Jerusalem. But, but this is sort of a, a subtle sovereignty, so to speak. In these first three three verses, it's subtle. We can see that Jesus is orchestrating this, but it's kind of behind the scenes, right? But his subtle sovereignty is not going to be subtle for very long, especially when we examine what happens with those who are seeking him. So let's look at these seekers here. Let me read verses 4 to 9 again. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So think of his sovereignty here. For starters, John tells us explicitly in writing this that Jesus knows what he is facing. This doesn't mean that he simply knows what happens in the court system. It doesn't simply mean that he knows what happens to to prisoners in general. He knows what he is facing. He knows that he is facing a trial before Annas and Caiaphas. 
He knew that Peter would deny him. He's already told him that. He knew that the others would mostly flee the scene. He knew that he would be brought before Pilate and beaten. He knew that the people would demand his crucifixion. He knew that they so hated him that they would demand the release of a killer instead. Give us Barabbas. He knew that the crown of thorns and the robe and the mockery, he knew of the spitting. He knew of the nails. He knew that the Father would turn from him as he laid on him the iniquity of us all. He knew what he was facing. He knew all of this would happen to him. That's why he prayed. Luke describes one of his prayers like this in Luke 22, verses 41 to 44. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And here, Jesus willingly and in perfect obedience to the will of the Father came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And as they answer him, Jesus of Nazareth, John again exposes Judas. Now throughout John's gospel, throughout this book, John seems to have it out for Judas. Every time he mentioned him, he calls him the one who betrayed Jesus. And even here now in verse 5, he reminds us that Judas is still there. So so look again at verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. We don't really need reminding who Judas is, do we? But John really isn't saying, don't forget Judas. Do you remember Judas? Yeah, he's still there with them. He's the one that betrayed Jesus, right? Remember that? What John is doing is making a connection between Judas and the world. Between Judas and the Jews and Gentiles who have come out against him. This is a cosmic connection. Let me read again a couple of verses from chapter 13. Verse 2 says this, During the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Did you catch that? It's even more overt in verses 26 and 27. John 13, 26 and 7 says this, So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Judas stands with the world as a representative of the spiritual forces of evil. Even as their ringleader. He stands there as the darkness, making his best effort to overcome the light. But Jesus, Jesus is the armor of God. Ephesians 6, 11, and 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And right here, Jesus is going before us so that we can put on the armor of God. Because without him, we can't put that on. 
He's going before us. That command to put on the armor of God is only possible because of Christ, because of what he does right here. And so not only is Jesus sovereign over circumstances, but he is sovereign also over the enemy. I'm sure most of you remember Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you notice their response to Jesus saying, I am, or I am he? It's just a foretaste of Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. In in fact, I would argue they probably should have just stayed in the dirt. They should have stayed down there. Except for God's will. See, with this statement, when he says, I am he, this is a Greek translation, so it can either go, it can go either way. He either said, I am, or I am he. Regardless, we're supposed to see those words, I am. When he hits them with this, he hits them with the full force of the gospel. He hits them with the full force of being God. This is a culmination, really. This statement here, and they're dropping to the ground. This statement is a culmination of all of his I am statements. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I am. And with these words, Jesus reveals a flash of his glory. And these battle-tested soldiers, probably hundreds of them, these armed veterans... They involuntarily fell back to the ground. They responded to his words very appropriately. They responded to his words in ways that they didn't even know that they were responding to. Their bodies hit the ground when he said who he was. There's an old uh, Scottish-English nonconformist minister. He'd been dead for a couple hundred years. His name is Alexander McLaren, and he said this, wrote it. He said, I am inclined to think that there was, for a moment, a little rending of the veil of his flesh and an emission of some flash of the brightness that always tabernacled within him. And that was enough to prostrate with a strange awe even those rude and insensitive men. When he said, I am he, there was something that made them feel, this is one before whom violence cowers abashed, and in whose presence impurity has to hide its face. They fell down. And as they struggle back to their feet, no doubt with bewildered looks, (laughs) what just happened? Picture them trying to get back up, helping one another up because they're carrying weapons and torches and lanterns. How did we fall down? What just happened? You can almost picture Jesus walking a little bit closer saying, Who was it that you were looking for? Who is it that you seek? But like so many of us, They're steeped in the stubbornness of sin and disbelief. And so they continue to reply with that simple, Jesus of Nazareth. They should have said, Lord, Lord. 
They should have said, have mercy on me, a sinner. They should have said, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Mark's gospel, in telling this account, he hints that they were going to round up all of the disciples. Probably they had the intention, this seems likely knowing the Roman armies, they had the intention of completely squashing this this pesky little uprising of a dozen or so people. But once again, Christ demonstrates his love, his care, and his protection for his own. See, not only here is he willing to perfectly obey the Father's call to lay down his life for the sins of his people, but he also so clearly is the good shepherd. He's protecting his flock. Look look again at 8 and 9. Jesus answered, "I, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. John Calvin made an important point here when he wrote this. He says, the evangelist, John, does not speak merely of their bodily life, but rather means that Christ, sparing them for a time, made provision for their eternal salvation. Let us consider how great their weakness was. What do we think they would have done if they had been brought to the test? While therefore Christ did not choose that they should be tried beyond the strength which he had given to them, he rescued them from eternal destruction. Well, we know that Peter fails the test. He denies Christ three times. Peter wasn't even arrested and he denied him. We know that the shepherd was struck and the sheep were scattered. And Jesus' protective care for his people here shows us so clearly what Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, when he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He provided their escape so that they might live to preach the gospel, so that they might live to write scripture, so that they might live to die another day for him. And because Peter is one of the disciples, he has to tell him twice. He actually, Peter actually came prepared to fight and die. He has a sword. We don't know that Peter carried a sword generally. There's nothing else about it except for this instance. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 to 35, gives us a little bit more background on their conversation from earlier in the evening. It says this, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And they clearly believed this sincerely. And so Jesus has to explain the cup to them. Pick it up in verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. 
Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This last dramatic moment before they bind Jesus, it highlights not only his submission to the Father's will as he prepares to face the cross, but it also shows his compassion and grace, even towards his enemies. Here's what I mean. Why did he have Peter put his sword away? Why did he tell him not to fight? Well, I can think of three reasons. There there are probably more, but let me just give you three. First, there was no benefit for the violence that night. He fully intended to be arrested, even though Peter disagreed. Violence would just bring anger and bloodshed and would serve no useful purpose for the kingdom of God. Not at this point. Secondly, he's protecting Peter and really protecting all of the eleven from certain death. Remember the overwhelming force of the Romans? They were ready for opposition. The Romans were used to putting down little rebellions and uprisings and were really good at making sure that those who participated in them never did it again. And also were really good at at, at making sure that the people in the community knew that that was a bad idea. And then third, and this is really the most important and the focus here, Jesus is determined to drink the cup that the Father has given him. And this cup is the cup of God's judgment and wrath. This imagery, it's used in several places in the Old Testament. And it's generally seen as the cup to be drunk by God's enemies. So I want to show you one such place. Just turn to Jeremiah chapter 25. Flip back to the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 25, um, verses 15 to 29. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But Jeremiah 25, 15 says this. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. uh, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse as it is to this, at this day. And you can kind of let your eyes roll down over those next verses. 19, you can see a list of nations that are going to suffer. Nations that are going to drink of the cup of the Lord's wrath. Pick it up in verse 27. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk and vomit, rise, fall and rise no more, because of the sword that I am sending among you. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, you must drink. For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name. And shall you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished. For I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. Cup. But also a sword. This is another reason why Peter should put away his sword. Because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. God is going to punish them in his time. But even more personally for Peter, 
Earlier, he had tried to prevent Jesus from serving him by washing his feet. And now here he's trying to prohibit Jesus from serving him by giving his own body as a cleansing for sin. Peter still doesn't get it. If Peter and all Christians, if we are to know Jesus, then we need to know him in his death not just in his life. We must know him in his atonement for our sin, and not simply as a good teacher whose message seems to be in these days no more than love your neighbor as yourself. His message was so much more than that. But he's demonstrating that in these verses. We all had plans for this year, didn't we? We all had plans for 2020, and we're frustrated that we can't follow through with so many of those plans. This is just a side point to all of this, but Jesus is the Lord of 2020. And too many of us are like Peter, swinging our swords and ready to take the heads off of anyone who comes close enough. Stop it. Stop it because he is the good shepherd who is caring for your soul, and he has not stopped caring for you. Stop it because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Stop it because God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We saw this in Sunday school earlier, but I love how John talks about light and darkness in his first letter, his first epistle. And following a section about light and darkness, he says this in 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. If you were in Sunday school, you know what it says. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. If you're a child of God, this is true. Of you. If you have trusted in Christ for salvation, this is true. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. John continues, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one in Christ. Because he has overcome the evil one. He's beginning to do that just in these verses. He does it with There's a line in Luther's mighty fortress. One little word shall fell him. You know that line? Here he says, I am, and they fell. He has overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. And that's only true because Jesus has overcome the evil one. It's only true because Jesus allowed this band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews with dirt and dust still on their uniforms from when he had knocked them flat with his words, he allowed them to arrest him and bind him. We're going to pick this up here next week, Lord willing, because this is only the beginning of the you catastrophe. 
With this arrest and binding, everything sad will come untrue. Behold, he is making all things new, even for us, even this year, even as we look through the corridors of history. He is making all things new for his glory and for our good. Pray with me. Father, help us to believe this, that you genuinely are making all things new. Help us to remember Christ's death, even as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, even as we hear from your word. Write it on our hearts, Lord, that we might not doubt you, that we might not doubt your goodness, your kindness, that we might not doubt your sovereignty that we might not doubt your plan. Father, write these things in our heart that we might not sin against you. Remind us of your goodness. Remind us of your care. Well, Father, we praise you today because you are making all things new. And you have started with your church. You have given us new hearts. Removed our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. In Jesus Christ in the new covenant that he has enacted with his own flesh and blood. Father, we praise you today. Remind us of these things, of your goodness and your mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.